I believe at least that compassion has a kernel of that extra step that we see what is wrong, what, you know, other people and other animals. And we then say, in my moral circle, in my moral sphere, I am going to do what I can do. And of course, during the pandemic, this has been just overwhelmingly present in my mind day after day that, yes, I work on animals, but I could in no way ignore the human suffering, the human grieving that, of course, is continuous, but has been amplified, exacerbated this year. I use the term brutal. It's a brutal thing to be in this position of being apart from our loved ones, our dying loved ones, to be apart from our dead. Everything is a great continuum. It's important to be good to each other and not necessarily to know what another human being is going through on any given day, but to give them the benefit of the doubt, to be there, to listen. We can do the same thing for animals, adapted, of course, to other species. And to me, you know, you strengthen your compassion for humans by strengthening your compassion for animals and vice versa. Hi there, Lisa Kiefoffer here, host of this podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. So you may wonder why I created a show like this, a show that explores the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives. I get that. When I was launching the show in 2019, quite a few people in my life said, you're going to do what? But since you're tuning in, I don't think you'll be surprised to know that it has struck a chord. I mean, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I'm no exception, with the most significant loss being my husband's death in 2011. I also spent a career as a social worker, as a narrative therapist, and now as founder of Reimagining Grief. And I just kept seeing how grief illiterate we were and the harm that was causing all of us. So through this show and my work at Reimagining Grief, I'm changing the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. Y'all, I am still pinching myself about the fact that I was able to sit in conversation with today's guest. Having spent her career as a biological anthropologist, Barbara J. King is now Emerita Professor of Anthropology at William & Mary and a freelance science writer and public speaker. The author of seven books, including The New Animal's Best Friend, putting compassion to work for animals in captivity and in the wild, Barbara focuses on animal emotion and cognition, the ethics of our relationships with animals, and the evolutionary history of language, culture, and religion. Her book, How Animals Grieve, has been translated into seven languages, and her TED Talk on animal love and grief has now received over three million views. In today's conversation, we explored how she has come to understand grief in the animal kingdom, how finding compassion for animals helps us to be more compassionate to our fellow humans, and why this perspective requires us to call into question some of our most fundamental beliefs and behaviors. I learned so much from our conversation, and I just know you will too. Barbara King, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast Grief is a Sneaky Bitch today. It's wonderful to meet you. I've been a fan. I think I was telling you a little bit earlier, so it's great to be in conversation with you today. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be here, Lisa. So as I've just shared with my listeners, you have a lifelong passion 
and career exploring as a biological anthropologist, all kinds of facets about the animal world, but frankly, that teaches us a lot about the human world and about our sort of collective existence here. And so we're going to explore that today. We're going to explore the TED Talk that you gave and the subsequent books that you've written, including one that's just coming out called Animals Best Friends. But to just sort of anchor us, I'd love to ask you the question that I ask every single guest that comes on my show. And just to make visible why I ask this question is I deeply believe that we have natural tendencies for grief and mourning, but we are surrounded in a culture here in the U.S. that causes sort of problematic and interference with the ways in which we grieve. Part maybe religious background, maybe part capitalism, lots of different things. But that all trickles down then, of course, into our family systems and how we learn. And so I'd love for you to sort of rewind in your mind and go back and share a little bit about what were your earliest memories of grief, either your own grief or observing the adults? And and what were you seeing in your family life when you were growing up? I grew up in a very small family. I'm an only child. So I was very close to both my mom and my dad. And in thinking about this, my memories touch on losing both my grandfathers. And this happened in elementary school, early elementary school. So I was I was young, this was before fifth grade, and there were a couple of years apart. And one of the first memories I have about grief is talking with my mother, this vivid image I have in my mind of making a bed with my mother after she had lost her father. And saying that a neighbor had just come over, and I I made some comment about how it's very hard when someone is empathizing or sympathizing. I didn't use those words at that age, but I could see that for both of us, having someone come into our home and express their sympathy made our eyes well, made us feel. And I was saying something about that to my mom. And it struck me very much how it seemed a little bit unwelcome to show that emotion. My parents didn't completely shy away from it, but yet it didn't seem completely natural either. And then when my second grandfather died, I was a little bit older and I was at the service, the memorial service, sitting again with my mother, a very strong memory. And I saw my father put his head in his hands and cry. And this was the first time I had ever seen this. My father was a World War II veteran. He had been a firefighter. He was a captain eventually in the New Jersey State Police, and I grew up really idolizing him. And it just rocked my world. And I remember saying to my mother, can I go over there? I asked her permission, and she said yes. And I went and I hugged him. And I thought a lot about the fact that he was emotional, but he didn't seem very comfortable with being emotional in front of all of these people, even though this was his dad. So those two memories stayed with me. And then Years later, when I was 28, so I was full adult at this point, I'm in graduate school, and my own father dies. And he was young. He was only 60. And that was the first time I myself was very crushed by a death, just a real blow. And I was supposed to be leaving for fieldwork in Kenya just a few months after. And my advisor in graduate school, who was wonderful, said to me, Barbara, you know, you really need to go. You've committed. And again, I had an image come to my mind, and this time it was of an animal, a horse or a mule or a donkey, I don't remember exactly, but just standing in the road and saying no. And I said, no, I cannot. My mother and I are grieving. I cannot go to Kenya for 14 months at this moment. And that was, in a way, the first time I kind of took charge of the fact that grief takes its own time 
that I will express my feelings when I need to express them. But that was a big step for me. Yeah. Wow, what beautiful stories. Thank you for sharing those experiences of observing your parents and how they were and weren't expressing their sort of emotional life. And grief is, of course, more than emotional expression, but that's one of the things that we see. What do you think allowed you, given that you saw your parents, you know, somewhat open to grieving, but you could feel, it sounds like even as a young child, their hesitance, their resistance to sort of be visible with this emotional landscape of their life. What do you think allowed you in those intervening years, then when your dad died, to be able to stand into the truth of your own grief and to really hold your ground and be even comfortable, I don't know if you named it like that at the time, but even being comfortable to say, hey, this grief is valid, it's going to take time, it's not something I can just get over. What, what do you think shifted for you that allowed you to claim that, really? Well, I think I just became much stronger in my own convictions about the way I wanted to be a person. I think that was a natural evolution over these 18 years since my grandfather had died. But I also think maybe some of it had to do with, you know, being an anthropologist and learning about how things are done other places and learning that what we do in the United States, of course, there's variation, but our overarching culture and our overarching traditions of maybe tamping down some of our grief expressions physically and emotionally is not the only way. And I could become emboldened to say that I don't necessarily have to live this way. I was making a lot of choices in my life about how I did and didn't want to live in terms of being an American. The trip that I did eventually take to Kenya and the postponement was only a few months was, you know, very, very important in that. I had already lived in West Africa. I then went and lived in East Africa. And that cemented my growth and my ability to stand up for really what I felt was important in my life. That's fascinating. And I'm glad that you brought up, we think often, of course, our parents or the adults in our lives, of course, are influential figures in how we begin to understand our own capacities and resiliencies. And of course, our emotional, you know, the acceptance of emotional expression, et cetera. But I do think our education, depending on what we study and some of those other experiences in life, can definitely shift or shape that. Do you think there's any connection about what drew you to anthropology in the first place? And you are a biological anthropologist, yes. You're a biological anthropologist. Do you think there was something in what you were curious about, what you wanted to study and learn that related to that sort of understanding of that there are different ways of being and I just want to explore and and make visible those things? Did you always know you wanted to sort of go down that route? The interest in the cultural variation in expression came later. When I was in college, I was absolutely set on the path of being a doctor. And I was pre-med. Then I realized... I was not excelling. I was not necessarily having a strong engagement. And I stumbled onto the biological anthropology class at Rutgers University in my junior year. This was not a class about cross-cultural expressions or cross-cultural habits. This was about our evolutionary history, how we evolved over the millennia, how we are related to our closest living relatives, monkeys and apes, and human evolution. And I never looked back. That was it. That's what I wanted to do. And that's how my my interest in animal cognition and emotion began with, with other primates. So at that time, when you were studying as an undergrad at Rutgers, was the field of cognition and emotion in the animals even a thing? Or is that something you helped sort of develop? Or Because I, I can imagine our listeners are thinking now about, you know, many of us humans think of ourselves as, you know, there's this sort of humanist, we are speciesist, you know, we're different then, and haven't really thought much about 
the cognitive or an emotional life of our animals unless we have an amazing dog who's so smart and we're sure they know everything. And so at that time that it sparked an interest for you, was that a field that already existed or was this sort of a one-off class or how did it, how did it evolve for you and what did it speak to in you? At that time, of course, Jane Goodall was already established in Tanzania being the world's expert on chimpanzee behavior. I didn't know it at the time, but as I was leaving high school and going into college, she had already written about grief in terms of the chimpanzee juvenile Flint who grieved his mother Flo's death. There were certainly people doing this work, but it was not really part of that class. The class was a traditional look at you know, who are our closest living relatives, who are the Australopithecines and the Neanderthals. And in the 70s, there was some work by Goodall and a small group of people, but it really blossomed after that. So that scientists more in the 80s, 90s, and, and, and so on from there began to ask different questions and it opened up the discussion again, going back, of course, to the century when Darwin was working, when he asked all kinds of questions about animal emotion and animal cognition. So we revisited what had happened before but there's a large group of scientists doing this now of which I'm a part. And it has become more and more sort of spectacular in opening up our minds to what's, what's really out there. The way that I always express it is looking at the clues and the cues that animals are giving us through their behavior, just being able to open up and see what is there. Yeah, to show up with that real genuine curiosity and also to maybe let go of our own ego and belief that we are somehow so uniquely different than our animal brothers and sisters. If I could make one distinction, it's we are unique. Humans are unique because every animal that has evolved is unique. This is an evolutionary principle and an anthropological principle, but what we are not is exceptional. So when I speak to audiences, I talk about it's fine to say that we're unique in the expression of our society, our language, our technology, our grieving. But then to translate that into what I call human exceptionalism is not okay. There's not any, there should not be a sense of superiority in understanding that we express ourselves differently. So we can come to this later, but it shouldn't be a difference in sort of quality or how profoundly we think or feel, just that we do it in our human way. I love that. Thank you for clarifying and correcting me around the exceptionalism versus the uniqueness. I think that's really important and I'm, I'm grateful to have that framework. I know we're going to talk a little bit. I'd love to talk a little bit with you about what you're seeing and believing around what we're learning about animals and their cognition and emotion allows us to teach ourselves and our young people in our lives around empathy and how that translates to the human population. I definitely want to talk about your latest book, Animals Best Friends, and what you've learned again, carrying forward this work of cognition and emotion. But I'd love for those who haven't heard the story, if, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about the seven, 10 years of work you did sort of observing different animals and observing what you were talking about with their signs and signals and grief and really what allowed you to come forward and maybe against some in the scientific community to say, I'm not just naming these behaviors as stress response simply, I'm naming them as grief. And you shared, I know on the TED stage, the story of, is it Tahlequah was an, was an orca? Can you tell us a little bit, like some examples of what you were seeing and why you drew that conclusion? Sure. I was writing the book, How Animals Grieve, in 2011, 2012, so just about you know, a decade ago. And at that time, there were some really good examples in the literature I had mentioned earlier that Jane Goodall talked about grief in chimpanzees. We knew that elephants grieve. 
there wasn't a ton more. So yes, I did observe some animals, but you know, it's hard to be right on spot in the time and place when an animal dies and a survivor grieves. So what I did a lot more of was really deep dive into the literature, lots of interviews, lots of watching videos and that type of thing. I have in my own life watched the expression of grief among the cats that we rescue. My husband and I have rescued stray and homeless cats for many years. And I can tell you two stories and I'll start with a cat story and then I'll go to the orca story. So the cats that I observed were two sisters named Kaylee and Haley. They were rescued together and brought to our outdoor enclosure, a large spacious enclosure with lots of shade and and places for the animals to get water and to stay inside in cool temperatures. But Haley became really attractively ill after some years and it became important to humanely euthanize her and we did that. We laid out her body because at this point I was far enough into the grief work to know that animals need to see other bodies in order to get closure not just to have a beloved sister whisked away and never seen again. And the other cats in the enclosure came up and smelled the body, looked at the body laid out on a tarp. But Kaylee, the surviving sister, just stared. And after every other animal had gone, Kaylee stared at her sister and she never came forward. She never wanted to come closer, but she just couldn't take her eyes off her sister. And I recognize that as an expression of some kind of loss. This is her, the dearest companion that she had in her life. And my definition in a scientific way requires that an animal does something out of the ordinary, whether it be social withdrawal or failure to eat or sleep or something different. And this was a very different thing. Kaylee stilled herself and stopped and stared and didn't interact with anyone. And that was very moving for me. And I'm very glad that we allowed her to have those moments with her sister. We see this type of behavior in a wide, wide variety of animals. But since I published my book in 2013, we're learning just so much more. So in 2018, in the summer, an orca or killer whale named Tahlequah was swimming with her pod in the Salish Sea. And this is a body of water off of British Columbia in Canada and off of the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. She was pregnant and certainly scientists knew that and were hoping for a successful birth. She did give birth, and this was in a pod that had had no successful live births in three years. This is a very endangered situation with pollution in the water, noise pollution, water pollution, not very many Chinook salmon, and this baby died within hours. And this was a blow to humans, but of course, here we have a sentient orca, very, very smart animal, part of a complex social network, part of an ocean culture. And what she did for 17 days was refuse to let the body of her daughter drop off her own body. She kept it on her body through what I am convinced is an intentional behavior. So that if the body did slip, she would dive and retrieve it and put it back on her body. Went out of her way, you know, away from her pod, acted differently, didn't eat as much as normally, and really put her all into this. And I believe this was an expression of her connection to her daughter. There's no way that an animal as emotionally and intelligently complex as an orca would not realize that an offspring had died. So the world was riveted for these 17 days. Many of us were watching day to day what was happening. And after 17 days, she let the body go into the ocean. She resumed her life. Very happily, she has since been pregnant again with a live birth and is now a mother to another living offspring. 
But this was an example that really galvanized people because you could see it in the moment for a prolonged period of time. So many other examples, Lisa. I mean, I could go through giraffes and pig-like animals called peccaries and magpies and cats and dogs. It's just, it's astonishing. Thank you for sharing that story so much. I've heard it before and every time I hear it, my heart races. And as a mother myself, it just kind of really speaks to me. And one thing to just ask or to clarify is it's not necessarily unheard of for a mother whale to have the baby whale on their back that dies, but to not, it was the duration and the amount of time, right, that she kept carrying and scooping up. And Yes. I mean, it is true that other dolphins and whales, other cetaceans have been seen carrying the baby who has died. This was just exponentially longer and more evocative in the sense that Talakaw could be followed and observed up close. So we really could see a thousand miles swim with this intentional effort. But it is not, you're correct, it's not exceptional in the sense that no other orca, no other whale has done this before. This does seem to be a cetacean behavior. And by the way, chimpanzees, gorillas, monkeys also carry dead babies. You know, it's a, it's a mammalian thing that happens in, in something of a pattern. When we come back, Barbara helps us understand how and why our thinking about cognition and emotion in animals has evolved over time. While she believes this doesn't equal experiences of grief in all animals, cue those pesky mosquitoes, she does remind us that what we know now would have seemed ridiculous about 30 years ago. She shares how what she's learned and witnessed in her work expanded her sense of herself, really, and her role moving from just a scientist to now an animal activist. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer, and you're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Well, speaking of that, so one of the things you were saying is that of the mammalian piece to this is that not necessarily, we're not going to necessarily discover that mosquitoes and bees and flies are necessarily capable of this kind of grieving because this has to do with just like for humans, when we grieve something that we valued, that we had an attachment to, a connection to, of course, when we're talking about death, but we can, of course, grieve things that aren't, we can grieve people we've never met, for example, we have that capacity as humans. Even since you gave that talk in 2019, do you still believe there are maybe more animals that are capable of grief, but not necessarily every animal is capable of grief? What do you think is the key there for us to think about? Well, a very smart woman who was writing a book sent me something that said, you know, I really want to quote you and I want to cite you about grief. She's writing about grief. And one of the things she decided to say was, you know, Barbara King says that all animals grieve. And I had to say, whoa, you know, that's in fact not, not my claim at all. And I can approach this from a couple of different perspectives. One, as you've already hinted, we don't necessarily expect to see grief in spiders or frogs or trout. This does not mean we shouldn't look because, of course, 20, 30 years ago, we didn't think we would be seeing it in the variety of animals we're seeing it now. But this is an open question. And I expect to see it more in birds, mammals, reptiles that do have individual relationships and a certain level of sort of cognitive complexity. There's another way to look at it, though, and that is to say that even within orcas or cats and dogs or elephants, not all individuals may grieve. There's an example that I talk about where there was a matriarch elephant who died and a parade of animals came for five to seven days to, to look at the body in some cases and in other cases to breathe. 
So for example, the male elephants didn't really seem very interested. Some of the younger animals came and showed a curiosity response. So they would poke the body, look at the body. That's not grief. That's not enough for me to claim grief. Other animals stopped, rocked in distress over the body, held a vigil at the body, showed things that fit with my definition. And in many cases, the difference in this type of behavior is indicative of the closeness of the relationship in life, but not always, not always. It is as true in humans, of course. I was just about to say, we see this in humans all the time. Even the latest episode I had was a palliative social worker, and we were talking about even the differences between the way kids express grief and adults express grief, although even among adults, we express grief differently. But yeah, so it's not, we can't say, well, it doesn't always look the same, so it must not be true. Grief is very expanse in its exhibition. Exactly. And I think, you know, we can all think of examples of friends or family members who may have had a parent die and maybe had a very good reason for not grieving in the traditional way. I mean, this isn't to say that there wasn't emotional turbulence or things going on, but it's not the case that, you know, everyone cries with immediate and enormous distress at the death of someone in their family. And you wonder how that plays out in animals because sometimes relationships in animals are dynamically really complex with the good and the bad. So, I was speaking with a woman, this was in, I'm pretty sure it was a radio call-in show, and I mentioned this in my TED Talk, and she said, I have two dogs, and one died, and the other one doesn't seem sad at all. You know, Professor King, what can you tell me about what's wrong with my dog? And I said, well, first of all, you know, that's not really the way that grief works. Animals are very variable according to their personality, as well as the relationship with the deceased. But also, the dog that's left is now the alpha dog in your household. This dog maybe celebrating his or her new experience. So there's lots of ways to reach my conclusion that grieving is highly variable and requires close observation before making any conclusions in any specific situation. And I think we so often too have attached grieving, the signs of grieving, of course, as you said, only to sorrow. That's a big hangup of mine that makes me crazy, like actually anger and numbness and confusion. There's lots of things that represent grief. But I also think We've tied it very much to language and our ability to express it through words, which then, of course, if you think about animals in the animal kingdom, we can't necessarily see that or interpret that too, which makes it difficult sometimes for us to see that. I would say to that, yes, I understand your point. Certainly they're not verbalizing. And yet, on the other hand, no, there's this... They're communicating still. Right. There's this trope going around, you know, that animals are voiceless and we must stick up for them. And I'm always saying... Okay, they're not speaking in our language, but they're by no means voiceless. And what I look for are, of course, vocalizations, but also facial expressions, change in body posture, all of these things that are about affect. And in many, many cases, those signs are present. Yeah. And so those are signs of communication and even language, just not language in the way we have conceived of it as humans. So as you spend those years and you write the book, How Animals Grieve, and you've studied the works of other people, interviews, Did that have an effect on how you started to see yourself in the world as a human, your role with Animal Kingdom, whether you're thinking about the impact that you have as an individual or how you might use your voice, speaking of the word voice, to think about if we understand animals as having the capacity to grieve, then what does that mean about our relationship with animals? Can you tell me a little bit about what you've grown to understand in that? I think in some ways that my turn to being an animal activist as well as an anthropologist was really solidified. It didn't begin, but it was solidified with that book. 
because I began to think about the fact that grief ripples through animal societies. There's a lot of focus on, you know, this is terrible, an animal has died, but there's a lot less focus on what happens to the other animals in the family, partners, parents, children. And I got to thinking about what happens when dolphins are taken from the wild and made to perform in a theme park or pigs, cows, and chickens are sent to a slaughterhouse. And I would also add chimpanzees, monkeys, rats, and mice are taken for biomedical experiments. The pain and the sorrow of those animals who are the individuals involved, they're all real, but also it reverberates throughout. And that I felt, you know, my goodness, I really felt so deeply what being sentient means, that these animals, their lives have so much meaning in and of themselves so that when, you know, these animals that I'm talking about, when they get up and start their day, what happens to them in their day is important to them is what happens to me in my day. And I darn well better start acting for animals as well as writing about animals. And my animal advocacy really ramped up at that point. And yes, I, I have been making the attempt in very serious ways to use what platform I have to ask people to think about who they're eating, how their entertainment goes in any given day, what costs to other animals to their entertainment. You know, what do we find acceptable and what do we not find acceptable? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, watching your TED Talk wasn't the beginning of my journey to becoming vegan, but it definitely sent me right over the edge. And that was part of that. And I've been a vegan ever since. Mm -hmm. And part of it is that realization that when I think about the pain that I've seen in my own family after the loss of my husband and then my friend Joe, the pain that my daughter has experienced, the community, and then now I serve people through my work at Reimagining Grief. For me, and I'm, I'm just saying this for me, when I started to think about putting myself in the, that animals not only grieve, but that they have these relationships that they're mourning and the, the ripple effect, I couldn't do it anymore. Okay, that's my commercial for being vegan. If you want to know more, there are more experts out there. So I'd love to talk a little bit about your book, Animals Best Friends, and how that evolved from that other work. I'd also love to explore, and we can go in either direction and come back around, that topic I was talking about earlier, which is how this work has helped you shape your concept of empathy, how we have empathy as humans, maybe some of the pushback that people say, like, stop worrying about animals, we've got humans that are suffering, why are you spending your energy there? And what you've learned about how having empathy for animals maybe actually makes us more capable of being empathetic to our fellow humans. How has empathy evolved for you? Yeah, well, let me start with that last part. People ask me all the time, you know, why does it really matter that we understand that animals grieve? And one thing is that it makes me feel more connected to other animals. And when I myself am in a position of grieving, and of course we all, I think almost all of us. 100%. Again, as you just said, for me personally, I feel soulless. I feel comfort in knowing that this is an experience of loving. And it's not only other humans, but so many of our fellow creatures. And it made me start to think about just how important it is to be attuned to what really everybody on this earth is going through. And it sounds so trite, but I feel it so deeply that this is a chance to look and understand the opportunities we have to make a positive difference and to really act compassionately. And in this new book, the subtitle of it is Putting Compassion to Work for Animals in Captivity and in the Wild. I chose the word compassion over the word empathy because I think compassion is an active word. 
you know, you can feel empathy and many people do then extend and act on their empathy. But I believe at least that compassion has a kernel of that extra step that we see what is wrong, what, you know, other people and other animals. And we then say, in my moral circle, in my moral sphere, in my part of this universe, I am going to do what I can do. And of course, during the pandemic, this has been just overwhelmingly present in my mind day after day that, yes, I work on animals, but I could in no way ignore the human suffering, the human grieving that, of course, is continuous, but has been amplified, exacerbated this year. So last April, I wrote an essay for the magazine called Sapiens talking about how completely unnatural it is to grieve the way that so many people have been grieving this past year. I use the term brutal. It's a brutal thing to be in this position of being apart from our loved ones, our dying loved ones, to be apart from our dead, that this is not the way that we evolved to grieve. Even though I can say we evolved to grieve in myriad ways, I know this was not one of them. And I guess in a way, I'm trying to answer your question by saying that I see everything is a great continuum, that if you understand how deeply it's important to be good to each other and not necessarily to know what another human being is going through on any given day, but to give them the benefit of the doubt, to be there, to listen, we can do the same thing for animals, adapted, of course, to other species. And to me, it's all, you know, you strengthen your compassion for humans by strengthening your compassion for animals and vice versa. Absolutely. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the way you pulled apart compassion from empathy and helped us think through how that actually makes us show up. I talk often in my work about how we kind of show up and we we don't have to have experienced what somebody else's experience. I hear that all the time. Like, I don't know what to say to this person. I've never lost a child. Well, you don't have to have had that exact experience. You have to show up in your full in your fullness and hold space and bear witness. And in that act, you can offer them comfort. And then you are reminded of what that feels like to offer comfort and to be held in compassion by somebody else, which makes you then more able to receive that from that next person. Exactly. As a person who went through a really difficult cancer, I had many people in my life who would tell me very openly, I don't know what to say. And I appreciated that because they were there and they were trying. The people who are not in my life anymore are the people who said nothing, just were not there through, you know, to, to use the word brutal again, surgery and chemo and radiation and all these other things. And I've always said, and I've applied this to grief situations as well. To me, it doesn't matter how eloquent your words are. It's your presence and your attempt. And believe me, I will hear you. And I have been comforted by that when I have tried to be a comforter, to tell myself, all right, these words are imperfect, but your sincerity will be heard. And I do believe that. I absolutely believe that. Uh, My listeners will know I've said it to them before. I actually created an entire line of empathy cards because I was so tired of people not showing up. And part of this deconstructing our cultural baggage is that we have this belief that we should only show up if we can fix something and that it's our job to fix people. Well, nobody was going to be able to fix your cancer. No one was going to be able to bring my husband back from the dead. But what they can do is, I mean, my little mantra is show up, shut up, and just listen. That's what I say. If nothing else, remember that. But in that act of showing up or saying, I belong to you, you belong to me, because I do think there's this piece of belonging when you are grieving or going through something like what you went through with your cancer experiences, 
we feel almost like that animal that's left out of the herd that is sort of alone in the wilderness. And to just have somebody sort of come up by our side, imperfect words or no words, by the way, it's okay to show up and not have any words, but to just show up makes us feel a little less isolated, a little less alone, a little more back in the circle of concern, you know, for the people that love us. And that's huge. Yeah. Absolutely. And of course, animals grieve and are present for each other all the time without touch. And when I have been with cats who who have died, my dear cat companion, Nicholas Longtail, who died just a year ago, had a long time in what we called hospice in our house, in a separate room away from the other cats, slept with us on the bed. And that's what he wanted. He wanted me there. He wanted to put, when he was at the end, really like the last couple of days, he put his paws over my hands and he didn't really get up very much. He just wanted me there. And it feels so natural with an animal. But I learned from that, you know, it can be natural with a human. It may be a little more, for me, a little more effort to get to that spot, but I can do it. Yeah. I think it's hard for us. Again, we do use language so much. We do have this, especially in U.S. culture, this ethos of like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and everything that's a problem has a solution and we can fix everything. And then we just try to throw words on top of it because we think, you know, and we have an expert culture. So we think, I can't just show up without an answer. I have to show up with a solution. And if you've ever been the person who's grieving or going through a difficult time, I can almost guarantee that the person who came with their opinion and advice was the person you hoped never came back again, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. I, I signed up. Yeah, that. exactly, yeah. right? Like, uh, <laughs> I don't need your advice. I can still remember some of the things people said to me that made me want to punch them in the face. So, mm-hmm. so I appreciate you helping, inviting us into thinking about how, when we can see compassion in any form, whether it's in the animal community and the human community, that allows us to show up better for ourselves and for one another. In our work, I really think of that in a way as our work, as for, for me as humans, is how do we show up and bear witness and hold space to those around us? And when we can actually do that for ourselves better, which comes back to like, how do you do your own work first? Like if you can sit in your own pain and bear witness, you can do that for other people. And the more we get practiced at that, whether it's ourselves, another human, an animal, then the better we are, we can be able to show up for everyone. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, biological anthropologist, Barbara King. When we come back, Barbara invites us to think differently about what we were taught about animals and what the consequences of those beliefs have been on animals, on the environment, and on humans too. As you heard at the top of the show, it's my mission to change the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. Part of that work includes helping grievers start to understand that some of our suffering comes from the cultural myths and grief beliefs that permeate our culture so deeply that they become embedded in our own thoughts and our own self-talk. Those beliefs then get embedded into our everyday practices, into our family systems, even into our company policies and cultures, all of which causes suffering at an immense scale. At Reimagining Grief, I've intentionally created safe, supportive, and educational services to meet you where you're at. Whether you're an individual looking for grief support through one-on-one sessions, guided meditations, and workshops, or maybe you're a leader at a company looking to bring more empathy and compassion to your corporate culture, I'm here to help. You can learn more about these offerings and about why I do this work by visiting reimagininggrief.com. 
So you did this work. What was the transition from how animals grieve to animals' best friends and that compassion work? What did you learn as part of preparing to write that book? What do you think are the salient points that our listeners need to know or or would benefit from knowing about what you've learned, adding that layer of compassion to your work? Well, I should say first that there was a book in between called Personalities on the Plate, Lives and Minds of Animals We Eat. And that's because when I was doing the grief research and I began to realize that animals who are considered food in our culture also grieve, I needed to stop and write a book about them. So I have a book about, you know, octopus thinking and emotion and chickens and goats and pigs and cows. Well, I'm definitely going to pick that one up. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. And so... You know, that was kind of all the piece in a natural sequence. And I got to the point a couple of years ago when I thought, well, many, many of us really do know now about the fact that other animals think and feel. You know, we've been reading Jane Goodall and Franz de Waal and Carl Safina and maybe me. So let's step this up and say, what do we do now? The reading, the documentary films, all of these things are important, but We're at the point where each of us really, I believe, collectively needs to support each other in looking at the harms that are occurring to animals and saying, where can I myself find opportunity to help there? This will differ, of course, depending on, you know, how much you have to work, how how your family is structured, you know, what money and time you have. So I'm not suggesting that all of us can do this the same way, but I strongly believe that each of us can do something. And so the book. Animals Best Friends considers five contexts, animals in our home, animals in the wild, animals in zoos, animals in biomedical laboratories, and animals thought to be food. And I take us through ways in which we can make small or big changes. One anecdote I tell is about a time a number of years ago now, maybe eight or 10, when I walked into the bathroom and I saw two big spiders on the floor, I gasped, I picked up my shoe and I beat them to death. And boy, am I really ashamed of that now. I mean, I would no more do that now than I would eat a pig. But I was raised to be frightened of spiders and I was very reactive in that moment. And one of the things that I really like about my new book is, yes, I talk about compassion for elephants and chimpanzees and orcas and cats and dogs. But I also talk about invertebrates, insects. I talk about octopus. And I say, let's look at all of these animals and see what we can do, maybe not squish an insect just because we were taught that they're dirty or bad. And I write about spider cognition and spider lives and how fascinating they are and how much I've learned and how much I love spiders now. One of the chapters that's really very dear to my heart, though, is a little bit different. And it's about the question of how science is predicated on animal models. So the idea that we're all taught in the United States is that to deal with an illness like mine had been cancer or say heart disease or diabetes or stroke or some kind of motor disability like paralysis, you have to use an animal model. And in fact, this has led to enormous suffering of so many millions and billions of animals. And many, many people think in a very well-intentioned way, there's all kinds of ethical oversight committees making sure that these animals don't feel pain. And that's actually not the case at all. There are very few laws or cultural practices in place. So I write about how we can educate ourselves about other ways of doing science. For example, human tissue cultures are these little fascinating devices called organs on a chip, which are 3D models of human organs that scientists are using to experiment on. And the idea that we have to 
be able to think of a continuum of responses from the literal rescuing of a cat or dog or not harming a spider to learning about things we were told are okay that really are not okay and that there are alternatives, just like there are alternatives to eating animals that are wonderful and delicious. There are alternative ways to doing science that we should be educating ourselves about. Yeah, I appreciate that. Also going to be picking up that book as well. Some reading to do for sure in my life. I really appreciate you helping us to think broader than our own personal grief at the individual level, or even our grief is sort of at the human level, but to really be thinking about placing ourselves in the whole fellow members of animals on the earth and how we might coexist and how we might actually honor and support each other's grief. Is there anything that doing this work has taught you about? You started to talk about a little bit, I guess, but just as we close our conversation today, I mean, anything else that you want to share, but is there anything that doing this work becoming more of an animal activist has taught you now that you think about, we're having this conversation, of course, starting with human grief, that has taught you about your own grief experiences, having lost your parents, I think you said both of your parents, and lost people in your life, and about how you might show up for your own healing journey, as it were, or how you might show up for other people in their grief? What maybe has transformed for you? Well, I would answer that two ways. And I think that it's helped me realize very concretely that love and grief are so intimately connected. I shouldn't be afraid of grief because if I grieve deeply, it's because I've loved deeply. And I don't mean in any way to say that that makes grieving easier. That is not the point that I'm making, but rather that, for example, I'm in my 60s, my husband is in his 70s, there's 11 years difference between us. And like many women, you know, I've grown up seeing my mother live for a lot of years without my dad. And something I think about because I'm close to my husband and we're, we have this age difference. And I think that the response to that is just to love more fiercely, you know, not to be afraid. There's another way in which I've thought differently about my own sort of role on the earth because I realized that this grief work is going on at a time when our whole earth is in crisis and that there's an ecological grief that many of us feel. And that's a little bit heading into my next writing project. But it also makes me think that how do we take that love-grief sort of dynamic relationship and apply it to the planetary crisis that we're in? It's made me think about, of course, as I mentioned, what I'm eating and who I'm eating and who I'm not eating. But also, should I be flying? How can I be kinder to the earth in the middle of this grief for how much things are changing for animal extinctions, for habitat loss, for the things that we're doing. And to be able to say, again, that compassion that we feel, we need to really bump it up. Now is the time. This really is a crisis time. And we need to support each other so that incremental change does matter. And it should be something that we challenge ourselves to do. Yeah, absolutely. I've been thinking a lot lately about climate grief and the landscapes and the species and the plants and also just the human habitats. And then, of course, the harm to the animal kingdom and to the human kingdom as we start to, you know, as things start to disappear that we'll never recover if we're not careful. Some things will, we will never recover. And so I appreciate you bringing that up. And I won't be surprised if later this season we have somebody on to talk about climate grief. As I said, my mission is to really expand our understanding of grief so that we 
I do believe, and this is why I'm so passionate about it, and people are always like, God, you must be really fun at a party, Lisa. Like, you go everywhere. But I do think, to what you were just talking about, this relationship between love and grief, another way that I often explain it is there's a relationship between joy and grief. And I think if you can grieve fully, if you can attend to grief in that bearing witness, holding space, honoring way, you actually are more capable of joy and delight and amazement because you've really accessed that sort of full spectrum of what it means to be. I just like to use that word joy because we can even grieve people we didn't love. We can grieve people who are our abusers or who are harmful to us or people we didn't know. But when we grieve you know, what was, or maybe sometimes we grieve what never was, and I think a lot of people are going through that in this time of the pandemic, But when we really sit with that and honor that, I think we can then turn our attention instead of the fake happiness, like get happy, be grateful for everything you have. I think when you can really sit with and honor all of the aspects of our grief, you can actually then turn your attention with curiosity and delight and amazement and joy. And so when we honor through ritual, through like you described some sort of behavioral rituals that animals go through as humans, when we can honor and bear witness and hold space for that which we lost or maybe that which we never got to have, we can make space for how we show up then and appreciate with delight and joy and amazement the little and big things that we do have in our lives. And I think that's the misunderstanding some people have often when they think about looking deeply into hard subjects, like the subjects that you study, like the work that I do. As I said, everybody's like, ooh, Lisa's got to be fun at a party talking about grief. But I think when we can do that, I feel that I'm able to access joy in some ways more than I had previous to even losing my husband. Not to say that I wouldn't do anything I could to bring my husband back, but I do think the deep work of understanding our place in the sort of human community, in the animal community, in the sort of earth community helps us show up with some curiosity. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about you, Barbara, that you you use your curiosity and your passion your compassion to drive your work and to help elevate all of our thinking, all of our internal curiosity. You've certainly motivated me to think more deeply on some of these subjects. So just want to say thank you so, so much for joining me on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch today. It's been an absolute pleasure and I hope this is the beginning of many conversations to come. Thank you. I hope so too. And it's been very enlightening for me to listen to you too, Lisa. So thank you. Y'all, here we are at the close of another incredible conversation, and I'm still processing all that I learned from Barbara. If you haven't checked out her TED Talk yet, Grief and Love in the Animal Kingdom, you absolutely need to. I'll drop a link in the show notes for today's episode, along with the link to her latest book. Special thanks to Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today. I also want to give a shout out to the team at StudioPod for producing the episode. As we close the show, I'd love to ask you a quick favor. As I mentioned, it's an absolute honor to create safe spaces for my guests and to share their stories. Based on the number of downloads and notes I receive from listeners around the world, I'm guessing the show is making an impact in some of your lives too. After this, please head over to Apple Podcasts, find the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, leave a rating and write a review. The world of algorithms counts on that to get this show out to the people who just might need it most. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my incredible guest, Barbara King. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. 
Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. Bye.